You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you are here with us. So I have, uh, those of you that don't know, I have three kids. My daughter Mia is 15. My son Xander is 13, who by the way was playing guitar again today. Yeah, couldn't be prouder. And uh, my daughter Livy is, uh, is 10 for at least another week or so. And uh, so when my daughter, it's about 10 years ago, my, when my daughter Mia was about five, I was sitting with her before she fell asleep and we had this heart-to-heart moments. And, and I'm telling you, if you're a parent, before you become a parent, you think, oh, we're going to have these all the time. And, and you don't have them all the time. That's, and I, you, you want them to happen. But we were having this heart-to-heart moment before she fell asleep. And I was telling her, and we had been talking, and, and I said, you know, Mama, there was a time when, um, when Mom and Dad, we couldn't have kids. And we tried and for 10 years, and nothing happened. And, and we just kept praying and trusting in, um, in, in, in what God was going to do. And one day, your mom got pregnant. Nine months later, you were born. And you were the answer to our prayers. And, and I said to her, I said, listen, your brother and your sister and you are so special to us. I said, but Mia, you're special because you were God's first answer to us uh, with all the prayers that we prayed. And, and so, and now I'm like tearing up. I'm starting to cry. And I'm like, mom, I love you so much. And, and so, and I'm wiping tears away. And she turns to me and she says, dad. And I said, yeah, mama. She says, um, could you say that again? I wasn't listening. And, uh, and I said, uh, I said, you're all right, go to sleep. And, uh, and so, now, we've all had these moments where we're trying to explain something to someone and they just don't get it. And we'll use different techniques, strategies, methods to get them to understand. And, 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 and listen, this is exactly where Jesus is with the religious leaders. He's been dealing with them at various times since he started in his ministry. And now things are starting to come to a head in their opposition of him. And uh, now in chapter 23, it's really going to all fall apart when he just, Jesus just directly tells them uh, a lot about themselves and who exposes them for who they really are. But Jesus is doing all that he can to help them change. And in, in the section that we're going to be looking at in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to tell these religious leaders three parables, three stories to illustrate what's happening and where they stand in God's story and, and what's been taking place. Now, if you aren't aware, this is message number 33 in our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been doing our very best to leave no stone unturned, but we haven't really, you know, when we talk about the chief priests, we've talked about some religious leaders, but we haven't talked about the chief priests very much in our time in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew focuses a lot on Jesus's ministry in Galilee, and now as Jesus has made his way south to the city of Jerusalem, now he's having more interaction with the chief priests and the leaders there. And if you remember, if you're with us in, in our uh, last message, Jesus walked into the temple and overturned the tables where the money changers were and all these people that were taking advantage of the poor. And it caused a big scene. And now those who are in charge of the temple are confronting Jesus, asking him why he does these things. And so you'll see on the screen the question that he asks in Matthew 21. It says, now, when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Now, 
Jesus responds to that in the next section of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm just going to tell it to you. And so Jesus responds to their question in typical rabbinic fashion, answers their question with a question. He says, hey, I'll answer your question. You just answer one question for me. And that is, John's baptism, was it from God or from men? Simple question. Essentially, you're saying, do you think John is a man of God? And this is a huge problem because they say, all right, give us a second. They go and confer, and they're like, well, what do you think? I mean, if, if we say, I mean, do you like him? I don't know. I don't like him either. But uh, okay, if we say from God, he'll say, Jesus will say, well, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from men, the people are going to get upset because the people think that John is a prophet. So then they confer, and they say, okay, we have an answer. Our answer is we don't know. And, and then Jesus says, you don't know? Well, then I'm not going to tell you where I get my authority from. But then there's something deeper here, and this is so important because this becomes the basis of the three parables that Jesus gives. And we're going to look at these three stories in our time together. And the point that Jesus is making is, if you can't figure out if John the Baptist is a real prophet or not, then you're not going to be able to discern anything of spiritual significance, and it's going to be impossible for you to change because you're not able to evaluate yourself. You can't discern your own sins or shortcomings. You're lacking total self-awareness. And so Jesus is seeking to point this out. And listen, sometimes there's moments where confrontation happens, and it's not because he hates them. It's because he cares for them. And that's always the goal of correction. You'll, you'll correct someone that you care about because you want them to do better. You know what happens when people that we don't really care about? We just move on. You see somebody and like, yeah, well, I'm glad I'm not him. And you just, you just keep going. And so God's intention is always to, when he corrects us, is that he wants us to change. Listen, I love the truth that God accepts everyone as they are. But here's the other part that we need to also equally accept. And that is that God doesn't leave us as we are. God wants to change us and transform us and make our lives look a lot more like Jesus. That's his goal for you. That's his goal for me. And that's the goal for Jesus as he's telling these religious leaders these three stories. So we're going to start in chapter 21 in verse 28 where he says this. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it and went. He came to the second and said, likewise, and answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, we're going to look at three things in regards to change. But the first is this, is that my life changes when my intentions become action. When intention becomes action. Jesus tells the religious leaders a very simple parable about two sons. And here's the problem with the parable. The religious leaders don't want to be either son in the story. The problem is they're the second son but they don't want to be the second son. Jesus says, hey, tax collectors and harlots, they're the ones who said no, but later repented and then started doing the thing that their father had asked them to do. And the problem is they find themselves in the second camp where they're now giving God lip service, but ultimately will not repent and will not change of their ways. 
And this is why he gets very heavy and he talks about tax collectors and harlots getting into the kingdom. They would have found this very insulting. I don't think it's, it's meant to be insulting. I think it's meant to be a statement of fact. Tax collectors, if you're not aware, were hated in Jewish cultures. They were hated in the Jewish culture because they were seen as collaborators with Israel's oppressors. The second thing is, is that uh, harlots were seen as grossly immoral because they had essentially rejected God's law. Both of these groups heard John the Baptist preach and repented. The religious leaders also heard John the Baptist preach, not to be changed, but simply to critique what John was doing. In fact, you'll see it up on the screen in Matthew chapter 3. It says this, but when he saw many, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, two groups of religious leaders, coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, could also be translated sons of snakes, um, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now listen, people were going into the water to be baptized. Their lives were being transformed. They were walking away from their old life and moving into the new life that God had for them. And that's, listen, that was true back then. And that's still true today when people go into the water to be baptized. It's a symbol of cleansing. It's a symbol of washing away the old life. You go into the water, according to the book of Romans, and identify with Jesus in his death. You come out of the water identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. It's an invitation to the life we were created to live. But here's the interesting thing, is that the word baptism isn't an English word. The word baptism is a Greek word that gets transliterated into English. Now, a transliteration is a, the sound of a word, and we just shift it into our language. So I'll give you an example that my wife the other day, she was making a cake for my daughter's birthday, and, uh, and she, said, she said, Bob, how do you say cake in Spanish? And I said, gay? And, uh, and she said, no, for real. And I'm like, gay? And uh, I'm like, there may be another word, but I don't know it. And, uh, and she's like, is that why when we talk about bleach, you say cloro? And I'm like, yes, that's how we say bleach, cloro. It's actually the colorante, but we don't, no one I know has ever said that. We just call it cloro. And uh, when you talk about um, uh, diapers, you don't call them pañales, which is what they're really called. We call them pampe. And, uh, and so that's how, that's how we translate that. Those are not translations. Those are transliterations and bad ones because they're... Um, their brand names, which kind of makes it a problem. So, but uh, baptism means this. It has a, actually has three definitions. Baptism means to immerse. It means to drench or to drown, literally. So you could have, we could have called him John the Drowner, but that sounds more like a serial killer name than a prophet name. So we transliterated it and called him John the Baptist. But uh, in the Hebrew culture, it would have been Johanan because that's his... Um, Jonathan, so it'd be Yohanan, uh, the immerser, as he was known. He was immersing people into the water, and people were showing up to be immersed. And, but here's the thing that made the religious leaders insane, is that John was baptizing Jews. That's not what you did. You see, you baptized people that weren't Jewish, that wanted to convert to Judaism, and that was the final step. They would be converted in something that was called a mikvah, and then they'd be baptized, and then that, that was their final step as a, to enter into the Jewish covenant. John was baptizing Jews and telling them that their heritage, their Jewish heritage was not enough to prove that they were walking with God. They had to repent of their actions 
and start, and start um, honoring God with the decisions of their lives. That's why these religious people were angry. And this is the point that Jesus is making in the parable. Good intentions are not enough. Giving lip service to God is not enough. Talking about how much we love God is not enough and then doing whatever we want. It's actually obeying God that really brings change into our lives. Now listen, I didn't come to know the Lord until I was 19 years old. And my wish would have been that I would have grown up in a Christian home and known God my entire life. I didn't have the opportunity to start well. But when I became a Christian at 19, I was, had the opportunity to start then. And so some of us, maybe you came to know uh, Jesus later in, in life. Listen, maybe, you, hey, I didn't have the opportunity to start well. But you have the opportunity, every one of us have the opportunity to finish well. And this is why baptism is such an important command, because it's easy. You know, Jesus isn't asking us to do something life-threatening, or dangerous or impossible when we come to know him. He invites us to do something so simple to identify with him. And I think that's one of the reasons why we neglect it sometimes, is because it's so easy to do, and because it's so easy to do, it becomes easy not to do. You decide to be baptized, let me tell you what happens in your life, is that you start setting in motion a pattern of obedience where you read about something that God wants you to do, and then you just do it. Now, uh, on the connection card that you were given when you came in, can I encourage you in this? If you flip it over on the back, there's um, where it says my next step is, you can sign up to be baptized here at Calvary in just a couple of weeks. And maybe you're like me, and you were baptized as an infant. I was baptized, I was a few days old. I have the pictures to prove it, just in case the baptism police ever show up. And, um, and, but once again, I, I was not... Um, it was not a decision that I made. It's a decision that my parents made, and it spoke of their belief in certain traditions. But when I became a Christian at 19 years old, I had to make a decision to be baptized. And uh, the last thing that we want to be is the one, is the son that looks very spiritual, but underneath it all has no intention of obeying his father. Let's set instead a pattern of obedience in our lives. Well, that's just the beginning. They don't like the first one, and if they don't like the first one, they're really not going to like the second one. And so here's how Jesus explains this. Uh, in verse 33, it says, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, and he set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers who went into a far country. Now, when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that he might they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took the servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their season. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to talk about when it comes to change, it's so important, is that my life changes when my decisions are reoriented. We have a new framework by which we make decisions. Now, this parable seems a little complicating, but, uh, but let me give you a little bit of background and it becomes really clear. Now, Jesus gets to the end of this parable and it says this, uh, right around verse uh, 45 or so, it says, and when the religious leaders heard it, they knew that Jesus was talking about them. How is that? 
because Jesus doesn't just make up this parable out of thin air. He's actually borrowing from Isaiah and uh, a parable that he tells. And so that's why the religious leaders knew it because they probably had that passage of Isaiah memorized. So let's start in Isaiah chapter five. This is what it says. It says, my well-beloved is a, has a vineyard on a fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, this, the, the, the one who's building the vineyard is God. The vineyard is the land of Israel. And the vine dressers are the people who he established, the the religious leaders. The fruit that they were supposed to bring up is the fruit of people's lives. And you're like, well, how do you know that? Because if you go down to verse 7, we're already told that. It says in verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delights in. And so it's already telling us that. Now, Jesus expands on the parable by going further into Israel's history. The vine dressers, as I mentioned, are the religious leaders because they're given charge over the nation's spiritual well-being to bear fruit in people's lives. But when the landowner sends servants to the vine dressers, they beat and kill the servants. And this is what happened to the prophets in the nation of Israel. And we know this for sure because Jesus is going to mention it again in the next chapter, in chapter 23, when he says this, Therefore, uh, Jesus says, Indeed, I sent you prophets, wise men, and scribes, Some of them you kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Then the landowner says, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect him. And the vine dressers kill him. So follow the parable that he's showing us. God gives these religious leaders the land of Israel. He entrusts God's people to them that they would bear spiritual fruit. He sends prophets to them to make sure that they're doing the right thing when they get off track. And they kill the prophets, and by the end of this week, they will have killed the son as well. And what's the result? Look what happens in verse 42. Jesus goes on. They say, hey, the the owner's going to wipe them out. And Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, and on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, Jesus moves from this son that, they, that the vine dressers rejected, now he's moving and starts quoting a passage of scripture from Psalm 118 about a stone that's rejected. So he's, he's keeping with the metaphor. And, and it's difficult for us because we're 2,000 years and half a world away to understand. But Jesus is using an architectural metaphor at that time because buildings in that day and age were not built with concrete foundations and concrete block and metal studs and drywall. That's not the way things were built back then. Instead, the way you built everything was that you built, you created a cornerstone on your building. Based on how big the building was is how big the, cor- the cornerstone was. And so uh, you, all of the dimensions of the building were made from the cornerstone. The lines of the building, 
And if it was going to be a perfect 90-degree angle building, would it, the cornerstone had to be square for the building to be square. If the cornerstone was rectangular, the building was rectangular. It was the most important stone that was laid. This is because the, the, the cornerstone had to be the perfect stone. Uh, they would spend, many builders would spend as much time on the cornerstone as they would on the rest of the building because everything was riding on the precision of the cornerstone. It was also the strongest stone that most of the structure was resting on the cornerstone, so it had to bear the weight of the building. And it was by far the most expensive stone because of the time that they took on it. When we built Calvary seven years ago, the, there was a cornerstone. Now, there's some block that is... Uh, for the first, you know, four feet or so, there's like this kind of orangey type block that we have. It's called a split face block. And then there was um, right behind here in the corner, there was a cornerstone that was laid. I laid the cornerstone of this building. In fact, we have a picture of it. That's me. So young and handsome, right? Wow. So good looking. And, uh, and that's me laying the cornerstone at the very corner. Like if just right beyond where this screen is, is where uh, that was. And I was so excited to uh, lay the cornerstone. I, 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 um, I had been, I talked to our GC about it, and he's like, you got to kind of lay it like this. I'm like, I got it. I made sure it was perfect, and then we took this picture, and then I was like, all right, my work here is done, and um, I laid the cornerstone. Basically, I built this building, and, uh, and then when it was done, I stepped away, and then the builders were like, hey, pastor, you did a great job, and then they re, it was totally crooked, and uh, they had to take it off and do it again. Um, we didn't take a picture of that part. And uh, so this is the only part that matters. And uh, so, but listen, but this was the point, right? You, listen, you got to take, oh, you took that guy off. You can't have a good looking guy like that up there. And uh, now here's the point. Knowing this passage in Psalm 118 and knowing the story that Jesus tells, the apostle Peter uses that as he taught and write, writes in his first letter um, about this moment. He was there. He's listening to Jesus tell the story. He hears Jesus quote this passage. Look at what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter says, you come to Jesus, and now God is transforming your life into something new and building you into a spiritual house. How does that work? He says this, Jesus becomes the cornerstone of your life. And now you start aligning everything in your life to Jesus. When you do that in your life, that's how the entire structure of your life changes. In fact, if we can back up a couple of verses in 1 Peter, you'll see what he says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes crave spirit, pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says, you've gotten rid of all these things in your life. Why? How? Because you've made Jesus your cornerstone, and now he's building you into a spiritual house. And there's something wonderful that happens. You give your life to Jesus, and the things that used to interest you and entice you just don't have the same allure anymore. Now, let me explain this. Have you ever heard of these? Um, anybody heard of, of these? Okay, a few people. All right, very good. Um, now, I, I stopped at CVS on my way to church this morning to pick up 
a couple packages of Razzles because I was going to give some out. And um, I talked to the guy at the counter. He's this young guy. And he said, I'm like, hey, do you guys have any Razzles? And he says, what in the world are Razzles? And I said, you know what? You have just established that you and I have a generational divide. And he's like, man, are you going to really say that to me? And I'm like, dude, I'm old enough to be your dad. And he's like, okay. And, uh, and he's like, but I still don't have any razzles. And I'm like, well, then this relationship is over. And uh, so anyway, uh, but here's, here's what, so razzles, I grew up, um, I grew up in Boston and uh, there was this place right down the street uh, called Little, not Little, Lil, L-I-L, Peach. It was a convenience store. Um, so Lil Peach used to sell razzles. And I was basically keeping those people open because uh, for the amount of candy that me and my friends bought. And so I would buy Razzles basically by the box. And razz- the, the thing about Razzles is, is that it starts out as candy. It's like a hard candy. And then it starts to melt and it turns into bubble gum. It was like the transformer of food. And so it was amazing. So I haven't seen Razzles in years. A couple years ago, I go up to Boston to teach at this thing and... Um, I have a friend that lives in Connecticut, and he says, hey, let's get together for breakfast. So I, I say, yeah, let's, let's meet halfway. So we meet um, about 45 minutes outside of Boston, and then he comes 45 minutes from Connecticut. So we meet at this Cracker Barrel uh, right off um, Highway uh, Interstate 90 in, uh, in Boston. And so I walk into Cracker Barrel, which is basically a garage sale that serves food. And, um, and so I walk into Cracker Barrel, and you're not going to believe they have boxes of razzles. So I buy two packages of razzles and I won't even tell my friend about them because I know he won't appreciate them because he does not have the refined palate that I have. And so I don't say anything. I keep them in my pocket. We have breakfast. I say goodbye. He says goodbye. I get back in my car or my nephew's car, I borrowed his car. And so I'm driving back and I open the package of razzles and I'm just <laughs> chugging the razzles. And, uh, and uh, would you know it, razzles are horrible. I mean, they're nasty, and, uh, and I couldn't believe it. I, I was, I, I, and now I'm like, what am I going to do with the second package? And uh, the, the candy was hard. The gum hurt my teeth. It tasted like death. And, uh, and I'm just like, how could I have ever liked this? Now, here's the point. When Peter uses the term, hey, you're laying aside all this stuff, right? Malice, envy, jealousy, all this you're laying aside. He says, well, how is it that you're laying it aside? Because you started craving something different. Like a newborn babe, you started craving the milk of the word, not junk food. You started craving the good stuff. And then how is that? Because you made Jesus your chief cornerstone. And listen, our lives will change to the degree that we will align our lives, our decisions, and our beliefs to the person of Jesus. And it will fundamentally change the things that we crave for and the things that we desire. Because listen, sometimes we're like, man, I just want to change. I don't know why I'm drawn to this. Here's the thing. Align yourself to the person of Jesus. And I'm telling you, this is the thing that will cause us to lay down the destructive things in our lives. Because making Jesus the cornerstone reorients us. It reorients our lives and God starts building something different in us. Okay third parable that he tells. In chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, and Jesus said and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to those, uh, to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent other servants and said, tell those who are invited 
See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized the servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Now therefore go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants who went into the highways gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was full with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I'm gonna tell you and then we're done. And that is that my heart changes when my, uh, my, my life changes when my heart is transformed. Okay, let's talk about ancient weddings for a couple of minutes, all right? Um, life was very different in the ancient world uh, and weddings were very different. Um, because in the ancient world, life was hard. You were struggling to survive. There was no Netflix, no Disney World, no vacations, no, not fun. You were struggling just for you and your family to survive. The second thing is, is that to get invited to a wedding was a huge honor because most couples didn't have lots of money and these were very involved um, engagements. And so that meant you were really loved by the couple. Third thing about weddings is that uh, weddings in that culture were not a 30-minute ceremony where we said a few vows, ate some cake, and did the Macarena, and then went home. All right? Weddings were a seven-day party. You were making a commitment to being there. If, listen, if you lived in the ancient world and you got invited to three weddings in your life, you were blessed. Now we think we're blessed when we don't get invited to a wedding. And uh, it is weird when someone talks to me and they're like, Pastor Bob, you know, I'm struggling. I didn't get invited to a wedding. And I'm like, hold on, you didn't get invited and you're upset? Um, and, and that's, anyway, I, I, I've never really understood that. Like, a night just freed up for you. And uh, did you really, anyway, so I'm going to say no more before I get myself into trouble. And, um, but in this case, this wedding, a king is throwing a wedding for his son. If you got invited to a royal wedding, a wedding where a king is throwing a wedding for his son, that would have been like winning the lottery. And so the problem is, is that all the invited guests don't care about going to the wedding to the point where the people that go out and invite them, they beat and killed. And then the king says, look, the wedding is happening. Everything's ready. I want you to go out into the highways. Anyone that you see, invite them to the wedding because we want the room to be full. Now in this culture, and this is an important thing because you read the story and you're like, oh, it all makes sense until you find the guy who doesn't have on a wedding garment and that guy gets thrown, you know, uh, basically thrown out into outer darkness, and you're like, wow, the guy could, didn't have a wedding outfit, and you, and you, and you threw him out. Um, so in that culture, the host of the wedding provided the garments that the people wore, which, by the way, isn't that great? Isn't that half the stress of going to a wedding is that you don't, you don't know what to wear, and you're like, hey, why don't you wear that? I can't wear that. I wore that to the last wedding. The last wedding you went to was in 2006, and uh, so it doesn't matter. That's, people saw me in that one. And so now, but the, the host gave you the clothes that you were going to wear. 
So the king provides the clothes for everyone, but one guy decides he's not going to wear the clothing that the king provided for him. He's going to do his own thing. So it's not that he didn't have the right outfit. It's that he didn't want to wear what the king had provided for him. That's the key to understanding this parable. The Jewish people had all the promises of God. They were the ones at the end that Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. They were the ones who were chosen. But they didn't care about the wedding. They thought about Messiah. Yeah, Messiah is interesting. I like the idea of Messiah. But when the Messiah was standing in front of them, they rejected him. So it's like, yeah, we want to go to the wedding, but we don't want to change. We want to kind of stay doing the thing that we're doing. And I get it. I think all of us have clothes that we think are comfortable. Everybody has a favorite pair of jeans, right? That you've worn them so much, they just fit kind of right. This is why, and I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to straight up tell you the truth right now. You're going to be like, this guy was really talking to us today. You're going to say that when you leave here. But let me tell you something. This is why men don't like washing their jeans. Let me tell you what happens. A woman washes, a woman wears a pair of jeans one time and throws it in the wash. A man wears a pair of jeans one month and then gets forced to throw them into the laundry because guys just, they don't want, they don't want. The thing is, is that you don't really, the jeans don't get comfortable until about the third or fourth wear. And then you're like, yeah, this feels right. And then, you know, whichever pocket you put your phone in, that has even stretched out a little bit to allow for phone and wallet and whatever. And I'm just, you're just like, this is right. This is why, you know, it, I'm telling you, when you go home today, tell, tell your, your husband, hey, I'm going to uh, buy you a pair of jeans. Like, what are you going to do that for? I already own one pair of jeans. It's my multi-purpose pair. It's the one that I wear to parties. It's the one that I wear to my construction site. It's the one that I wear when I do chores around the house and mow the lawn. And so, listen, they don't want, nobody wants new ones. They're, they're scratchy and, and stiff and they, they're not broken in. Now, here's how this works. Some of us, we want to follow Jesus, but we want to do it in a way that's comfortable for us. And I'm sorry, friends, that's not the way that it works. When you start walking with Jesus you know what's going to happen? Life probably will feel different. Sometimes it feels a little stiff. Sometimes it feels a little scratchy. Sometimes it's God smoothing out your rough edges because there is a process of living in an entirely different way. This is the problem with the guy in the garment that not wearing the garment that the king gave to him. He's like, I want to go to the wedding, but I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to wear my own thing because I'm not open to changing. When you come to know Jesus, listen, and those of you that have walked with God for a while, you know this to be the case. You start experiencing things like the Holy Spirit starts talking to you about stuff in your life that you need to change. He starts convicting you. And the normal stuff that you used to do, you're like, yeah, you can't do that anymore. That's a totally new experience. I became a Christian on May 29th of 1993. And in my brother's kitchen, my wife and I gave our lives to Jesus. My brother prayed, led us in a prayer. And my life was different from that moment. And I remember I prayed to receive Jesus. And about an hour later, I said, I gotta go. He says, where are you going? I said, I got tickets to a baseball game. And uh, I went to Fenway Park. I was in my, my brother lives in, lived in Boston at the time. So we had tickets to go see the Red Sox. And um, now th another thing you got to understand about me is that I, I used to cuss. Pretty much every other word was a cuss word. And um, which my kids, they have a real hard time. Like I, that, that's unfathomable, but it, it is. So we're at the game. 
And um, Roger Clemens, who was my, uh, who was, was pitching that night for the Red Sox, and who was my favorite baseball player growing up as a kid, and uh, until he signed with the Yankees, and then he was dead to me. <laughs> and uh, and so the other thing you want to know about that game is that George H. W. Bush, uh, President George H. W. Bush, was at the game. He had much better seats than me. Um, and so I was like out in right field, and he was in like the first row behind the Rangers dugout, and he was there at the game. Uh, because his son, George W. Bush, who later would become president, was part owner of the Texas Rangers, and that was the team playing the Red Sox. So anyway, I'm in right field. I'm about 200 feet away from second base. Guy from the Red Sox hits a, uh, hits a ball down the line uh, in right field. Right fielder for the Rangers gets it, throws to second, and, and the guy from the Red Sox gets thrown out at second, trying to turn a single into a double. And um, I, being 200 feet away, saw exactly what happened. The guy, you know, the umpire who was, I don't know, what, 12 inches away, he didn't see it like I did. And so I stand up and I'm like, why you? And then I just put my hands in my pockets and I sat down. And my wife looks over, and this is kind of when my talk would get a little extra salty. And, uh, and she's like, are you okay? And I said, yeah. I said, but I'm, I'm a Christian now. I don't think God wants me to talk like that. I've been a Christian for about two hours. You know, it really kicks in in the second hour. And, uh, and, so, <laughs> and so, and listen, in, in those first few weeks being a Christian, I tell you, I barely spoke because I didn't know what to say. I had a very limited vocabulary. Most of the words I used had four letters. And, uh, and so I just didn't, I'm telling you, I didn't say it. People, how are you doing? How, how are things going? You know, see ya. You know, I didn't say anything. And so I, until I had learned some new words. And listen, let me fast forward a few years. Um, talking is my entire life. <laughs> it's all I do is talk. And, uh, and, 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 and listen, let me just tell you, um, God had given me a new garment to walk in. And my life completely changed. And I'm telling you this because God wants to do the same, and maybe he has done the same in your life, but if he hasn't, he certainly wants to do it. He wants to give you a new garment to walk in, and if we miss it, listen, we miss out on everything because we say, I'm going to walk with God, but I'm going to do it my own way. We don't get to do it our own way. The only way it works is when you take Jesus and you make him the chief cornerstone so that we don't miss the life that he has for us. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says it this way. I love this passage. He says, you were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is always the metaphor. The metaphor is always take off the old clothes, the old self, the old way of life, and put on the new garment, the new person, the new man that God has created us to be. And listen, can we just be honest for a minute? Some of us, we're so tired. We're so tired because we have been expending so much effort and energy trying to prove that we're smart enough, prove that we're strong enough, trying to prove that we're good enough. And here's what the Bible tells us. We aren't smart enough because we make so many bad decisions. We aren't strong enough because we fail so often. And we aren't good enough because we know what's right and often we, we choose the opposite. But here's the other thing that the Bible teaches us, and that is that we are loved. Not because we're lovable, 
but because God is love and proved to us that he loves us when Jesus died for us. So listen, instead of rebelling against God, or even saying, I'm going to come to the wedding, but I'm going to wear what's comfortable for me. I'm going to do it my own way. Instead of that, why don't you make Jesus the chief cornerstone of your life, and you start orienting your life to the person of Jesus, and he starts building your house differently. Maybe God's message to us today is, maybe today is the day to surrender. And that if we will surrender, God will begin to transform us. He'll give us a new garment to walk in. He'll begin to change us in ways that we never thought possible to become the person that God has created us to be that we ultimately wanted to be. We just didn't see the path on how to get there. Maybe that starts today when we decide that we're not going to do it our own way. We're going to do it his way and we are going to reorient our entire lives to what he wants us to do. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that you don't leave us to figure it out. You don't even just invite us to the wedding and let us hang out and our old stuff. Instead, you want to transform us from the very stones, from the very foundation of who we are and transform us into a new person. God, that's my prayer for every single one of us is that we would be transformed by how we renew our minds, the decisions that we make, the actions that we take to become more like you. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.